I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello, everybody. It's just me today. It's May 6th, Monday, May 6th, 2019. It's actually been eight days since our last episode, because it was on a Sunday. And now we're on a Monday, and next week we'll probably be on a Tuesday. And so we're getting back into the schedule a little bit. Uh, tell me what you guys thought about uh, having Noah on last week. I thought it was pretty fun. Uh, he loves football, and we got to talk about football for 25 minutes or so. Um, and got to have a little bit of back-and-forth banter that I haven't really, or that is, I am unable to do when I'm here by myself. Um, I love doing it by myself and with other people, but uh, over the next few months, I believe we'll be able to get more uh, people on. I've got a few other people. Um, and so I hope you all will look forward to that. Um, it's gonna it's, it's really fun having people on who talk, like to talk about different things, and so maybe we'll get into some areas where I'm not as familiar personally. Um, and that'll be, that'll be really fun uh, to get some diverse viewpoints on the show, because for the last Almost coming up on two years now. It's just been my point of view, um, and a lot of the same points because uh, I have the same values as myself. Um, my values have not changed over the last two years or so, during which I've recorded this podcast. And so, even as the sports world changes, it's nice to to hear someone else and see what they have to say. Um, and so, I, I wouldn't. I really would love to do that again. And I'm hopefully over the next few months we will do so. Even though I'm by myself, we got a great show planned for today. So let's get into it. First, we're going to dive headfirst back into the NBA playoffs. A lot has been happening over the two weeks since we last touched on this. And ignore that ding-a-linging in the background every once in a while. And we're going to... All the series are tight. Uh, no one's getting swept. Fortunately, makes for good entertainment, entertaining basketball. And the first series we're going to talk about is the one versus four matchup in the Eastern Conference, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics. A lot of this series was going to come down to star talent. Uh, you know, how could Kyrie and Gordon Hayward and uh, them play on the biggest stage? versus Giannis and that that gang he's assembled over there and the other question as the series started to unfold was how was Milwaukee going to respond to losing home court in a in a pretty devastating game one loss now the answer to the star question I mean Giannis has shown out by all definitions of the word uh averaging 27 points um and 10 rebounds a game um, and almost five assists a game. And a team with not too much name recognition. I mean, Chris Middleton has started to really come into his own this year. Uh, I think he got the all-star now. He's averaging 21 points a game this series. Um, but he's a guy that really has to take over uh, with his length and his athleticism. And I think that's something he's done. Uh, I mean, he's also, for what it's worth, five for 10 from three. That doesn't hurt. Um, and he's been the leader of this team. Meanwhile, for the Celtics, they're getting a pretty balanced scoring effort. Kyrie Irving is leading the way with 21-5-7. Um, but Jalen Brown has also been contributing, 
along with Al Horford and Marcus Morris putting in surprising 14 points. I mean, this is a pretty even series uh, as far as as far as matchups are concerned. I mean, uh, I don't think the Bucks are overwhelming uh, against Boston. I mean, Boston can still shoot the ball well, um, and I think that that's not going to be an issue for them going forward. Uh, it's just going to be, can you stop Giannis and, and prevent him, uh, especially in those close game situations? All right, that's all I've really got to say about that series. Uh, Toronto and Philadelphia has also been a tight one. That one sits at 2-2. Now, when the Raptors went out and got Kawhi Leonard this summer, the main reason, I think, is, well, not the main reason, but one of the primary side effects of getting him was the clutch capabilities because the duo of Lowry and DeRozan, for all of their regular season greatness, were not known for coming through in the clutch, right? Um, and so when you get out, you go out and get a guy like Kawhi, you're getting a guy that's won an NBA championship who uh, already knows what, what you have to do to win. And Kawhi's been showing that throughout this series. I mean, he's led both teams in scoring, or tied for both lead up for both teams in scoring, uh, in all four games this series. Uh, in game one, he had, what, how many points? He had 45 points in game one, uh, 35 in game two, 33 in game three, and then 39 uh, in game four, in addition to leading his team in rebounds. He's just been a dominant presence. Uh, and I, I And also at the end of game four, hitting the clutch shot, to not only win game four and tie the series back up, but to take back home court and win in a tough arena to play. I mean, that arena in the playoffs is rocking. They haven't had a good 76ers team. uh, or They didn't have them until the last couple of years, and they're really making the most of their efforts uh, this year. And I think the Raptors this year have as good a chance. I think they're the favorites right now. Uh, in the uh, Eastern Conference, because none of these teams look particularly dominant. Um, And I think the Raptors, with Kawhi and Pascal Siakam, I was averaging 20 points a game as well. Um, And then if Lowry can get his shooting touch back a little bit, this is a team that has the potential to be really dangerous. Uh, And I think uh, that's one team to watch for as these playoffs go on. Sliding over to the Western Conference, uh, we're going to save the Warriors and Rockets for last. The Nuggets and Trailblazers, I mean, this has been a doozy of a series so far. Uh, it's 2-2 right now. The Blazers took Game 2 on the road in Denver. And then Game 3 was an instant classic. Four overtimes. I turned this game on because I was at an event, and I turned this game on, and there were like five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And I watched it because, you know, it's a playoff game. It's close. Of course, I'm going to watch it. And then kept going. And then they tied. And then it went to first overtime. 7-7. Second overtime, 9-9. Third overtime, 11-11. And it was giving me flashbacks to, well, the game that I'm always going to remember because it was when I started to get into It was UConn and Cincinnati, I believe four years ago in the American Athletic Conference Tournament. Um, And they went, I think it was three overtimes. But you started to get that feel because the thing when games go that long, when at the NBA level, I mean, fatigue is obviously an issue, but when you have the rest management or load management, I'm doing air quotes uh, in the sky right now, when you have the load management strategies that are employed in the modern NBA combined with the modern 
conditioning techniques, training and everything else, it's not as big of an issue uh, as far as fatigue affecting quality of play. But as this game wore on, you started to see a lot of, you know, settling for jumpers and all that stuff that happens when you get fatigued. Um, and it really played a factor, especially once Rodney Hood came back in the game, who was not fatigued because in the fourth overtime he hadn't played since the first overtime, ended up with 19 points. That was a big, uh, big factor in, in, the, in the Blazers winning. And I, I want seven games of this series, man. It's competitive because uh, if Jokic has a good game and you get the backcourt, of course, it's kind of like that dynamic of the big men or the big man for Denver versus the guards from Portland. Um, and it's a stylistic difference. Uh, obviously, the Nuggets have you know Jamal Murray um, and Gary Harris playing well, and the Blazers have uh, Enos Cantor, who shout out to him for, like, staving off dying. Uh, look that up if you haven't seen it. But the stylistic difference I think is interesting to see, um, especially Jokic becoming such of a such a dominant player um, in today's versatile NBA. Oh, I almost forgot um, predictions for the other ones. Uh, Raptors in seven, Bucks in six. Um, what was I going to say? Blazers in seven. Uh, okay, and now on to the series that I am most invested in as a Warriors fan, but also just one of the more intriguing matchups. Golden State and Houston. These teams obviously have plenty of history. Last year, they went to Game 7 in the Western Conference Finals, uh, and Houston missed 27 straight threes. Now, this series has been close throughout, but after the Warriors won the first two games... It kind of looked like, okay, we're just kind of going through the motions. They're going to win game three, and they're going to win it in like five games. Houston might take a game uh, here or there. But a few underlying factors have emerged that make this series a little more complicated. Because anytime you see a prediction with the Warriors, it's predicated on the idea that no matter what happens, the Warriors are going to have contributions from Durant, Curry, and Thompson, right? And no matter what happens, that talent is going to ultimately carry them through. However, neither Steph nor Clay have been firing from three uh, in this series. I mean, Steph Curry's a 8-for-32, and Clay is shooting 7-for-20, which is not bad, but it's not... We, what we know Clay is capable of. And as a result, Durant is carrying this team. Uh, 36.7 points per game. He had 46 uh, in Game 3, a tough overtime loss for Golden State. Oh, interesting stat I heard. Golden State's 0 for 6 this year uh, in overtime, which is a coincidence, but interesting nevertheless. Uh, I think the Warriors will be able to come back in this series because Steph Curry is just too good. Uh, I don't think I think he had a really bad off game last game and you could really tell once he missed that first layup you could tell it was getting in his head. I don't know if it was his finger uh which is healing or whatever but he was in his own head because the next layup I mean it wasn't even that close by a layup standards, and then, of course, the, the, 
the video bite, everyone saw the Miss Dunk, which at that point was just a formality, basically. But it was still really embarrassing and kind of a microcosm of his mental state at that point. He's a he's a good stable dude. I mean, I have no qualms that he will he will be back and focused and locked in again tonight when they play again in when I'm recording this about a few hours. Um, and I think the Warriors are going to take Game Four, but it's going to be a competitive series throughout. Let me also address something. Uh, there have been reports from Woj and stuff that Clay Thompson is looking at the Los Angeles Clippers if the Warriors don't give him a max. Uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN. And I, I get it. I mean, if the Warriors don't want to offer him a max contract, why wouldn't he go out, take more money if he has to, because it would be one thing if the Warriors hadn't been winning championships, but they've won three out of four, and they're in the running again. If they win this championship, I mean, what else is there to achieve here? It's easy to say, like, look, uh, you're on a winning team. Why would you sacrifice that? And Clay has said that he wants to be a Warrior forever. But ultimately, complacency is a thing, and human nature is a thing. And there's a desire to have your name up in lights and a lot of people are criticized for chasing uh, or for being quote-unquote selfish but that's usually when they haven't already achieved something. Clay's already done everything he needs to do as a second or third man. If he wants to go out to LA and be the primary scorer on that team, more power to him. Um, It'll be really disappointing from this end but I I totally get his perspective. And Kevin Durant uh, will be facing a similar situation, and the same goes for him. Uh, I mean, he he's already felt the worst of what free agency can do as far as public perception and perhaps state of mind. Um, and him leaving to go to a uh, less talented team, a team that hasn't had as much recent success like New York or wherever, um, I can see how that's attractive for him because he has a chance to etch his name in the Knicks history forever if he can even lead them to like the second round Um, and so I totally get where Clay and Katie are coming from and uh, I wouldn't be mad at them if they left another thing I saw uh, courtesy Bleach Report Patrick Beverly said or courtesy NBA TV Patrick Beverly says Katie is uh, quote the best player in the NBA hands down it's not even it's not close end quote and that's big respect uh, because Patrick Beverly, uh, Clippers, obviously, uh, guarded Katie really well um, and was just a giant pest. And Beverly, I get the sense, and I think a lot of people would agree, that he's one of those guys that's a humongous pest on the court. Drawing charges when maybe he shouldn't be, clapping in opponents' faces, etc., etc., etc. But off the court, game recognized game, uh, he's a good dude. Um, And he knows a great player when he sees one, especially in Game 6, when Durant just came up and dominated. And so that's going to help. I don't know if that has to do with recruiting or whatever, but KD's stock value probably just went up, or trade value probably just went up a little bit. I think Patrick Beverly has a good amount of say, especially with regards to players that 
he has experience guarding firsthand and players that he supposedly, according to the media, got in their heads. Like, people were, or everyone said that Patrick Beverly got in Durant's head, and they were right. Uh, he did. Um, but for now, Beverly to come out and after the fact and say he's the best player in the world, uh, it really speaks volumes about not only how much Beverly got in Durant's head, but how Durant uh, frustrated Beverly, maybe, even if we, we didn't see it. Oh yeah, one more thing I forgot to mention that I uh, planned to talk about and forgot to, inexplicably. In the Nuggets and Trailblazers game, there was a moment, uh, I forget when, uh, one of the overtimes, when a ball was deflected, uh, McCollum deflected a ball off of, I believe it was Jamal Murray's hand, it might have been his or Gary Harris's hand, and he, McCollum deflected it out of bounds on the floor, it looked like no question about it. Easy call to make. But when they went to the replay, they saw that after McCollum tipped it, it grazed the fingers of the Denver Nugget as it went out of bounds. And I think this rule's got to change. I mean, it's the same thing that happened in the national championship game uh, where on the floor it looks like an obvious call, but when you slow it down a ton, it clearly enough that you have to overturn the call went off the uh, the person who's getting it deflected, their fingertips. And that rule's got to change. Because there was a... Actually, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. But there was a lot of discussion uh, after the Kentucky Derby of would this be called differently under different circumstances? Right? Would you make the same call late in the game as you would early in the game? And if that doesn't match up, one of those things has to change. Um, and I think it's, in this case, replay has to change. There has to be some kind of deflection rule and a subsequent action to try to touch the ball by the offensive player, uh, or else, in, in two as as we get down to two minutes, we're going to see this happen way more often. Um, and I think this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg. All right, second topic, brief one. A lot of stuff went down at Churchill Downs this prior Saturday, the Kentucky Derby. One of the biggest spectacles in all of sports. Two minutes of glory. Or more than that, in this case. For the what I've heard the first time ever, and I'm not going to pretend I'm a horse racing expert. Oh yeah, one of the things that I found funny is when sportscasters make, like, uh, I guess bad takes, a lot of people just don't really think about it because it's like a super common sport and I've probably can be guilty of this one or two times. But when you get things like the Kentucky Derby or like fringe things like for a lot of people boxing or hockey, people just become experts in it all of a sudden. And I think it kind of illuminates that a lot of this industry that um, I am on the very, very periphery of is a lot of people are just kind of making this up as they go. Uh, and a lot of people... It's, it's one thing to be knowledgeable about sports just from watching it all the time. It's another to be able to come up with good takes um, that even if you don't know something a lot of, uh, or if you don't know a lot about a topic going in, you can do enough research and formulate an, an informed opinion. Um, and I think that's a skill that goes uh, kind of underappreciated with, say, the Stephen A. Smiths of the world or the uh, Mike Wilbon and Tony Kornheisers of the world. The ability to formulate an informed opinion quickly. Um, I think is something that goes a little underappreciated. Um, well, not their payrolls. But anyway, 
for the first time ever, a horse, the horse that crossed the finish line first was not the horse that ended up winning because after an appeal from the horse that finished in second, uh, Maximum Security, the supposedly winning horse, was disqualified for interfering with other horses and stepping in front of them. And the slow-mo replay showed how potentially dangerous that could have been. Uh, first of all, that would have been kind of a surreal scene to see horses tripping on top of each other because literally the entire focus of NBC's coverage is like, this is grace at its most elegant form. And then to see like five horses just falling on top of each other definitely would have been a sight to behold. It also would have been very dangerous for both the horses and the jockeys. Um, but nevertheless, that would have been something. Anyway, I'm not going to like tell you what I thought about the ruling because, well, let's be honest, I watch horse racing three times a year, uh, the triple crown races, like like many people, like most people. But I must say, it was really something to extrapolate the experience at other games or at other American sports, the experience of everybody watching the monitor and the replay and making their own judgment and holding their breath while the refs decide what happened and make a decision. It was kind of surreal to see that applied to horse racing, which is supposedly one of the purest sports. I mean, you don't need any technology to play it. There's no clock. There's no special equipment other than obviously the horse. I mean, this is the simplest, one of the simplest sports there is. And yet we sat, just like any other American sport, watching a monitor for 15 minutes, waiting for some refs that we had no control over, uh, decide this ambiguous ruling. I think that was just remarkable to me. It's kind of an interesting scene with 150,000 people just standing there watching a monitor. Uh, but, I mean, it's... I'm, what, what I'm curious to see is if we see this in future races, because apparently this is a pretty freak thing. Like the horse just got spooked and, and jumped out of the lane, jumped out of its lane. But if we start to see stuff, more stuff like this, I mean, we might see some reform from the powers that be. Uh, but that's that's just an interesting thing. Also, one last thing from the Kentucky Derby: shout out to the bugler. Every time I watch the Derby, I always get nervous as part of like secondhand experience for the person who has to play the call to the post at the beginning because you've got millions of people watching at home 100,000 plus in the stands and to get out that first note must be tough and also to tongue it right because that tonguing was quick but obviously that's a professional bugler it's kind of humbling to hear them sometimes like crack a few notes or not play everything with a perfect tone because it's like even the professionals even the best of the best the people that are uh, hired to do this type of stuff at the Kentucky Derby. They make mistakes too, um, which is interesting and nice to see. But that's about all I've got to say about the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby this year. And that's all I pretty much ever will have to say about the Kentucky Derby. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's that. Lastly, I'm going to dive into another topic that I'm not the most familiar with, uh, which is hockey, because the Sharks have been doing some crazy stuff. Uh, I, I don't think I ever talked about it yet so far. Um, but Game 7 against the Golden Knights was miraculous and crazy and anything you ever want in a sports match. There were dramatic swings of momentum, the Knights going up 3 nothing in the third period and it looking over, and then the major penalty gets called, 
and then they score four in a row. I mean, if you haven't watched that, go and watch it, if not for the hockey, for the crowd, because the whole sequence of events takes place over the course of like 10 minutes, and you can just feel the momentum building and building and building until finally this just crazy thing happened, this crazy four goals happens, and then everyone's going nuts, um, and then Marcheseau ties it up, and then they go to overtime, and there's 18 minutes of just tense overtime. I mean, it's some of the best theater I think I've ever watched. Um, and if that was your first ever hockey game, you're kind of spoiled now. Um, and nothing will ever live up to that, or probably. But now the Sharks are in a tough series against the Avalanche. Uh, they're up 3-2 right now, heading back to Colorado. Game 6 is tonight. And they have a chance to win the series, or uh, the Avalanche can send it back to San Jose. I actually was watching Game 5, the end of Game 5, with some of my family who like never watch hockey. Um, and it's really playoff hockey is really something. Because uh, of the stakes and just how fast-paced it is. Um, and I think maybe in the regular season, if you're a casual sports watcher, it could be like soccer, where you're kind of frustrated by the lack of scoring. But when it gets to playoff hockey, um, boy, that is something else. Because every goal means so much, uh, especially uh, in regards to the single elimination nature of it, um, where it's one series and you got to win it or you're going home. So, playoff hockey, also live hockey is really fun. I went to a game about a year ago, um, and live hockey is something else, because A, no one, I mean, it's much easier to follow the puck live. I mean, I don't really have an issue with that, but uh, if you do, watching it live, it's not hard to follow the puck. And also, just being in the crowd is always a good experience for any sport, uh, whether it be hockey or baseball or basketball, or there's always, or soccer. It's always more exciting to be in the crowd and having fun with everyone else. Um, and that's something that I'll probably never forget. Quick take. DeMarcus Cousins expects to play this season, returning from his quad injury. Rob Goldberg, Bleacher Report. You know, DeMarcus Cousins would do wonders for this team right now. Because, honestly, I mean... Okay, I'm not going to overreact a ton, um, but there are times when Golden State's offense is not clicking and being the miraculous pill to end all bad things uh, that it often is. It can be ugly at times because when they can't shoot and their whole offense is built on movement around the perimeter uh, and spreading the floor, it can look like they're getting four shots uh, a lot of the time, we're taking mid-range jumpers with players that shouldn't be as much, like Draymond or sometimes Andre. Um, and adding DeMarcus in there really would help uh, stop the bleeding in a lot of cases. I've made this, uh, I don't know if analogy is the right word, but before, uh, in that a, a strong big man helps you to ensure that games don't get out of hand or runs don't get out of hand when your shooters are cold. Um, because they can always, you can always throw it to them down low, and if you throw it to them three times, at least one, they'll score. Um, and so I think to having DeMarcus Cousins would be a huge boost for the Warriors, uh, especially in this series, going up against Capella would be big, uh, but I don't know if, or we don't really know that much about if he's going to make it back in time, uh, because DeMarcus wants to get back as soon as possible. Warriors fans want him to come back as soon as possible. Um, and especially because this might be their, his last season with them, and he really wants a chance to get to play in the postseason. 
Um, he hasn't had a chance to do so far. Uh, and so it would be great uh, for him to come back and be a part of this team as they play, continue to play this tough Rockets team. Quick, no, not quick. Off topic, this is a recommendation. It's like halfway between a plug and not a plug. I'm not talking about any product in particular. I'm just kind of generally advocating for something that I, I really enjoy using. Just recently, I was very hot, and I was looking for a drink. And I was in the house. And you can grab your water, your vitamin water, your Gatorade out of the fridge. And it's nice. It definitely cools you down. It's nice and refreshing. You get your electrolytes and everything. But I was wondering, was there anything better? And I recalled that a few years ago, and I had kind of stored it away, but I had this slushy maker. And all it is, at least this specific slushy maker, all it was, you have to take a drink that has some sugar because it has to congeal in, in a certain way and it has to have sugar. It also tastes kind of gross. And you put it in this kind of cup-ish thing with these ice packs aligning the inside and you squish it for a few minutes. And it turns into a slushy. Now this one I couldn't really do because it's like five years old and so the ice was kind of like bad. So I had to just take it and put the drink in the freezer for about an hour but it made this nice looking slushy thing and this slushy thing does wonders for multiple reasons one it is colder than your traditional drink because it's been in the freezer forever and so it is more refreshing number two it has more of a well actually no i'm gonna do this one first number two it you can drink it with a spoon or eat it with a spoon. And so consequently, you can eat it slower and you can savor it more. Because if you just buy a smoothie from Jamba Juice uh, and you, you sip it, it lasts you a little while. But you get this thing. Even if you only have like seven ounces of drink, it lasts a, as a smoothie for like five minutes. Um, and so that's great. Three, there's a sense of pride that comes from making your own drink, I think. And it really lightens up the taste buds and you really get a sense of I made this this tastes good because I made it and I said number three like there was more on this list but there are not those are the reasons that I recommend getting your own smoothie maker they're cheap and they work thank you so much for listening to the podcast as always bit.ly slash the takes patreon.com slash the takes the takes at gmail.com rate and subscribe on iTunes and Google Play uh, send questions leave voicemails Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next week.